Welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge. Do you want fries with that education? That question is one that a lot of professors fear is essentially coming to colleges as higher education leaders adopt practices from businesses and attempt to rethink their operations. There's even a growing body of scholarly work that outlines a critique against the corporatization of college, saying that even when reforms are well-intentioned, they kind of end up turning campuses into something like a burger franchise for knowledge instead of a center of learning and research. So how can colleges try new teaching practices or or data-driven experiments or other new approaches without sacrificing their core values? That was the topic of our latest installment of EdSurge Live, an online town hall about big issues facing EdTech. For this week's podcast, we're bringing you highlights from that discussion, which took place a couple weeks ago. As you'll hear, we invited one of those skeptical scholars, as well as an innovation leader from a college. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge webinar, How Social-Emotional Learning Really Affects Students. On October 30th, join EdSurge for a panel discussion on how SEL affects students inside and outside the classroom. Register now at bit.ly slash real SEL. Higher education is, is very unique and proud of its uniqueness. And obviously the mission of, of traditional universities is to help students and contribute to research and, and you know, and, and, and do all that. So to many academics, comparing colleges to, to businesses of any kind is, is kind of fighting words. Um, yet at the same time, obviously, um, many college leaders are, are finding that colleges can learn from some of the best companies, especially when it comes to kind of creating culture of innovation and, and, in sometimes in adapting technology and, tr- and trying new things and, and higher education is sometimes um, also, you know, not praised for its ability to change and sometimes is said to move too slowly. Today, we're going to talk about these seemingly contradictory impulses within higher ed. Um, and I'm pleased to say we have two incredibly thoughtful guests to help us do that. Um, Dennis Hayes um, is co-author of the book, McDonaldization, the McDonaldization of higher education. And he's a professor of education at the University of Derby in England. Um, and as I said, you're in an evening time zone. Thanks so much for joining us kind of on the late hour there. Um, you could be watching whatever late night show is popular in Britain. Um, and Kristen Eshelman, director of digital innovation at, D- at Davidson College. Um, and she's grappled with these issues in her own writing and is obviously uh, working on the ground there at Davidson to, to um, do innovation right. Thanks for being here, Kristen. Thank you. I wanted to start with a question for Dennis. Um, and I know I mentioned your, your book title. You've written a lot of essays besides just the, the one book I mentioned on your concerns um, that colleges are becoming, uh, as you say, McDonaldized. Can you, can you just briefly explain what that means and what, what the core of your concern is? Yes. Um, the term McDonaldization was coined by George Ritson um, in 1991. And in his original work, he described the university as um, like factories. Mm, factories processed by two things the bureaucracy and computers and originally when i first wrote about this i thought well it doesn't feel like that the students are quite happy certainly in britain you know, the student satisfaction survey that um they're all in, they're all quite happy well they're happy but they should be unhappy because really when you go to university um the university is about the pursuit of truth without fear or favor Anthony Gibbons. it's a great phrase for him at university but they should challenge everything you believe and think about. But 
if you try if your main concern is to just make students happy that doesn't work you mentioned that there's even a, a bit of a what you call a, a, a mcdonaldization paradox which is um that that the people that put in these reforms that you're concerned about are are well-meaning they're not doing it out of any sort of um you know dystopian negative sci-fi villainous way but that somehow even though the intent is good the result is not good in your view well that's true they i think certainly in britain when um, a lot of these systems like we have um, a thing called the research um, excellence framework which is where of allocating money for research so people um, you have to uh, present your four best pieces of work and the universities have to describe how they encourage research and money results of this and um, when it was originally introduced it a lot, all the universities thought it was a good thing because a lot of the money just went to the top universities and this was a more equitable way of distributing um, research money and ensuring that everybody every student had the benefit of being taught by people who are involved in research and but then the process itself becomes so bureaucratic that it, it sort of undermines the um, that that positive element. I once gave a talk, just as an anecdote, really. Um, it was called "Education is Bad for You," uh, and, and somebody said um, you shouldn't say things like that because it will depress the students. But I was being ironic. I mean that when you go to university, it will challenge everything you believe in. You know, you, people may lose contact with their family; they have all different experiences. So. It changes your life. But if your concern is to make people happy, you don't want them to start worrying and being you know, really concerned. So you, you just stop challenging them. Nobody makes anybody do this. They just basically stop saying anything that's critical. So if, if you really challenge students to think and challenge their assumptions and their most preciously held beliefs, then they're going to be unhappy. Sure. And I think there's there's a lot to unpack there. I think one of the things that I, I heard in the, in the beginning and in really the McDonaldization critique is a that it kind of everything else you've talked about maybe trickles down from that, but the the sort of standardization that can come from creating these, um, you know, bureaucracies or um, systems that you described. And um, I guess I did want to get, get Kristen involved here. Um, and I guess cur curious, Kristen, what your reaction to any of this is, and especially the, the broader critique of, of that, the danger in bringing in, um, some sometimes these these digital innovations or some some big big new things is that there could risk these standardizations that could get at the the core of what education should be about um, in the mission statement of a university. Yeah, well, I'll answer that with Davidson's context. Um, so I would agree with much of what I heard Dennis say, or at least I I would echo that many I think on our campus would agree with that. Um, and if you look at the accreditation process. <clears throat> That's where this became apparent to me. So SACS is our accreditor. SACS is one of the more, um, I would say, strict accrediting bodies where they get down into the detail of learning outcomes in every single course and you know, force you to go through this process of defining those learning outcomes and then you know, you know, document those, make sure those are part of the accreditation process. Uh, to the point of of almost stifling faculty creativity in courses. I mean, that's the argument you would hear back from faculty is that yes, we're, we're trying to, to standardize, we're trying to have uh, accountability in a time when people are increasingly questioning the value of a liberal arts education, uh, but not recognizing that the value of what happens in the classroom is oftentimes very emergent. It's a, it's a discovery process. 
and you can't define ahead of time what those learning outcomes are going to be in those cases. There are cases where it makes perfect sense. You know, there's some introductory science courses where you can very clearly define those outcomes and make sure those, those are hit, but it doesn't apply everywhere uh, evenly. So we had a lot of pushback. It was, it's the first time I'd actually heard general agreement across our campus from uh, the top all the way down to frustration with that process because it didn't feel like it aligned with our values. Um, so I, I would agree with that. I think the, I also think industry, um, you know, with the exception of lean manufacturing, industry would, would also agree, I think, in many cases. And this is why I like innovation, because I think innovation is looking at that space of emergence and discovery. So I don't see innovation as, a, as an industrialization of education, or at least doesn't need to be. There are probably cases where that is happening. Uh, but if you look at examples like the one I, I mentioned in the article, uh, 3M, where 3M did apply a lot of that standardization, linear ordered, uh, very efficiency driven model of running the business and they realized it was killing their capacity to innovate. Um, and so they've, they've completely dumped that um, because their business model is around emergence and discovery. And I, I think that's the same in, in higher education. That's really where we should be focused. I don't think it means you have to throw out accountability. I think what's interesting here is trying to look at innovation efforts that explore accountability in other ways. So are there ways that we can be accountable for emergence and discovery where we can show that that is valuable? Um, those are the kinds of things I'm interested in in the innovation space, not, not McDonaldizing or you know, trying to, to apply these standards, but really trying to say, what, where is the value? And by questioning our assumptions about those, those values, I think we do get uh, closer to a kind of accountability that I think could benefit higher education so that we don't have to keep fighting this battle with those who are saying we're not being accountable for what we do. Yeah, That's I guess it's one reaction. No, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing is that, you know, McDonald's, obviously the reason that the, the scholar who first came up with this, you know, McDonaldization of society critique and, and then Dennis's um, use of that and, and really digging into the higher ed context is, is McDonald's is obviously one where people are kind of see it as, as very mechanized and, and, and in a way, I guess McDonald's doesn't feel ascendant anymore as a company or as a, a cultural force. If anything, it's, you know, on, on the decline perhaps. But so I guess it's almost like which, which corporate meta, but, but you're sort of arguing, Kristen, that there are actually corporations that are, um, and maybe they're not big ones, maybe they're smaller ones or whatever it is, but they're, they're trying things that might be worth emulating in a, in a, in some way, I guess, if I'm understanding you correctly, and that, and it wouldn't be about just standardizing everything. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. I think the way startup culture works is very similar to the way the scientific method works, for example. Um, I think there are things in industry we can learn, particularly that Horizon 3 have to do uh, innovation and accountability in, in really in context of uncertainty. So when you don't know what the outcomes are, how do you become accountable and manage in those spaces. Um, it's really looking at, at higher education as a complex adaptive system. This is where my heart is at the moment, is trying to understand our institutions in that way. I just think it's unfortunate that um, politicians, a lot of, I think, ed reform people aren't thinking about complexity. They're thinking about scale and how do you simplify and how do you standardize in, in the ways that I think Dennis is, is critiquing, rightly so. It gets to one question I wanted to ask both of you about um, that came up in the, when I talked to you for the article we wrote, which is 
Um, this issue of faculty engagement, what's the right level of, of getting the faculty involved? It seems like it seems like one where you might have a little bit of different perspectives, the two of you, even though you, you do agree on some of this broader um, uh, sort of ethos, it seems like. But I guess, you know, I, I guess, Dennis, what do you think, um, how do you think college leaders, um, if they want to try something new, if they do have some, you know, ideas about trying to improve edu- uh, the teaching, say, um, what's the right way to involve faculty in, in trying to push, to, to sort of try to, to spark those, um, those, those you know, efforts? I'm, a, I'm not against innovation. I mean, I, I like McDonald's. I mean, I think they're really good at what they do. You know, there's no doubt about that. And um, they're very popular across the world. I just think um, universities are not good at those systems. And what often happens with innovation, certainly in British universities, is that people who are not part of the faculty or um, part of the management, essentially, they impose innovation or ideas on the staff. So you have a, we have, um, they're introducing um, some forms of academic tutoring, which are often online. And it's all dreamed up somewhere else and then presented as something you're going to do and it's innovative. And there's no dialogue. So I think innovation to, to be really effective has to be the product of dialogue and discussion between staff and the innovators. If it just comes from externally, it just will not work. Yeah, Dennis, I hear that. I, I certainly hear that view from some professors and especially those who, who I guess aren't involved directly with innovation efforts. But at the same time, it is tricky just to play a devil's advocate to, to avoid, you know, to, 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 to do that. I know that, um, I guess, Kristen, you, you, when you and I spoke, you mentioned that there was that example of Amherst College, I guess, when they were considering whether to experiment with MOOCs in the early days of that trend and, and they were going to join edX. Um, and then they put it to the whole vote of the faculty Senate, as I recall, and they ended up rejecting it. Um, and so um, they didn't do it. But and, and you were, Kristen, you were sort of saying that you felt like that might have been a missed opportunity for the university because it wasn't going to, um, it was just a small sort of experimental program. Could you say a little more about, you know, the, the sort of, the, the, that kind of model of, 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 invo- of faculty kind of uh, involvement? Yeah. Um, when we were talking about that, um, Jeff, I, I was drawing from some of my own personal experiences working with innovation and watching this, this bizarre inverse relationship between the number of people who are thinking about an idea and as that number grows, particularly in the faculty, uh, the resistance to it um, also grows. So, so you would have, I'd work with one faculty member on an idea. Uh, the enthusiasm would be high. The willingness to try it would be high. And as we involved more people in that, the, the willingness went down. So as it went to the department to discuss this idea, I would see faculty move into a different role um, in that conversation where they were less willing to take risks. They were more concerned with the, the peers in their departments and how they would react to, this, to their involvement in this idea. And then as we move from the department, so it would get watered down a little bit. Then we'd move from the department to the entire faculty. And in some cases, people would just pull out altogether. So the same person who was very excited at the beginning of an idea, by the time we moved up and involved the entire group, the, the, the mind shift was, was radically different. And I, I can only really um, attribute that to what I think is a structural design that doesn't support innovation when you take it to the whole faculty in that way. 
but I think individuals are very, very willing to try. And, and you do need to, to Dennis's point, I, I think top down is the wrong approach. So it's not that you say top, top down, we're going to innovate and we're not going to involve the faculty in that discussion. That's just as bad as trying to say, okay, everybody, we all need to agree that we need to innovate because <laughs> that won't happen either. Um, but the people who have the best ideas for innovation are the ones that are closest to the work. It's not the people who are the most distant from the classroom. So you have to have the, the innovation start in a very localized way. But if you involve everyone at the outset and you try to get everyone to agree on what that should look like, you're going to kill the idea for any innovation to get off the ground. So it's, it's an odd, I've, I think it's a structural problem more than anything. I don't think it's, um, it's people or, you know, people in that role. I really think it's the way those structures almost force you from, from taking those kinds of risks as you move up from individual to department to the entire faculty. What do you, how do you get around that? Or have you found a way at Davidson to try to? Yeah. So this, this is the struggle we've, we've had for the last few years. We tried to launch R&D, true R&D, um, where we would not get into the weeds of an idea, but we'd let an idea get off the ground and iterate over time. And and validate the learning as we were actually putting it into place. So building and learning as we go, as opposed to say, spending three years coming up with the perfect plan, which is how we typically do things, and then investing millions of dollars in that plan, and then you're kind of stuck with it, whether or not it works. edX is, it could be an example of that, right? Where you invest a lot of money in trying an experiment, but you didn't try it on a small scale first, you just went whole, you know, whole hog into this, and now you've invested time and energy into something, maybe you wanna kill it now and you can't. Um, so the, the way we did this was we started out just trying to run projects, uh, trying to sort of push projects through in an R&D way, um, but we didn't have a process that people trusted. So the only processes we had were really processes that were designed for, for permanent changes, either permanent changes to um, you know, adding a, a program or a course to the curriculum. Uh, we didn't have a way to say, how can we experiment with something where we don't know what the outcomes of this course is, is going to be or this program is going to be, but we want to try a pilot. And from that pilot, learn what works and what doesn't work, and then iterate and try a second one later, but not kill it before it gets off the ground. Um, so we went back and said, okay, we're not going to be able to get this through the standard college processes anywhere they exist. Let's design a process as a campus very uh, inclusively, right? So to Dennis's point, faculty were very involved in designing this parallel process for experimentation and then trust that process. So trust that whatever idea goes through that process, it's going to be vetted appropriately, it's going to be validated appropriately, it's going to be assessed, and, and you step away from the idea, let it run, and then see if we want to continue it later. Um, so that, that's the way we approached it. But it took us, you know, it took us two and a half years of pain to get there. Uh, I, I, one of the things that struck me in and covering innovation space in, in, in higher education is that I read, I read your, I read books like the, the McDonaldization of higher ed. And there are a lot of these scholarly critiques and even just attend talking to faculty members who are involved with, with innovation. And there's a lot of complaining about what's being done. And there's a lot of critique that's um, you know, this, these well-informed critiques, but I, I often feel like that isn't necessarily being read or the same books and articles or views aren't being read by, um, people that are actually doing some of these projects in um, the innovation space. And I could be wrong. I, uh, I, it's just hard for, it feels like there's kind of separate discussions that aren't necessarily talking to each other. And I wonder, Dennis, if you, if you, what your thought of that. And also if you had a reading list for people who are out there at colleges um, working on whatever, you know, some, some sort of digital innovation that they 
are trying um, and what you would like them to read or what you think would help that, that they should inform themselves on as they come into this space. Um, I would recommend everybody to go to James Woodhausen's um, website because um, he's written some fantastic articles on innovation mm -hmm. about use of IT and across every aspect of university and academic life. He wrote um, an, um, a piece in the original, uh, the McDonaldization of higher education, but jameswoodhausen.com or woodhausen.com, you'll find a wealth of articles. But one of the central points he makes is that it's the fear of change that's holding back innovation. And um, in fact, innovation is generally a slow. I know it seems because we all send lots and lots of emails and it seems like they're really creative, but they're not really. And I think um, he makes the case that you know, there's to be more, there's very little money put into um, R&D. A lot of R&D money is, in, done, is spent on marketing rather than on, on development. And, and there is very, very little innovation. And he did write a, with colleagues a, a fantastic manifesto called Big Potatoes. And it's a manifesto for how London could become much more creative and innovative. And I think, um, you know, so the one thing I would recommend is read some of the works of James Woodhouse. Um, well, we are, I, I think we could, we could go on, but, um, Krista, did you have, did you want to have any final, um, thoughts on, um, on, on anything we've talked about here before we, we close? Uh, no, I, I guess the, the one thing I would say around innovation or even critiques of innovation is, um, just to recognize the diversity within higher education that different institutions are, are trying to solve different problems. Some are research institutions, some are purely teaching institutions. Some are trying to take people from lower socioeconomic classes into, into higher um, socioeconomic classes. And that's the problem they're trying to solve. And so the innovation needs to be contextually relevant. Um, and for that reason, I think any kind of standard around innovation is going to fail, uh, but really getting institutions to engage in that within their context in a way that's bottom up um, is, is, the, is, in my opinion, uh, the key to successful innovation. Uh, thank you again, Kristen and Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. So find us on Apple Podcast app or, or Stitcher or Overcast and click on subscribe. Also, make sure to check out our articles about the intersection of tech and education at edsurge.com slash news. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Special thanks to Michael Sano, who helps make EdSurge Live happen every month. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.